welcome to risk roundup identification is a moving target it is an unfortunate reality today that almost all identification and authentication technologies that are in commercial use across nations are not hack proof and they pose potential security vulnerabilities and threats there is a hope that neuroscience cognitive science can come to the rescue and be at the frontline of security defense and offense for human identification and authentication as we see billions of dollars are already being spent across nations to map the human brain there is a hope that understanding the brain circuits neural pathway and wiring mapping the brain will not only let us understand the better for the human nervous system better but it will also let us into the human mind to achieve our security needs while there are many obstacles the scientific community must overcome before they can successfully use neuroscience advances for identification and authentication requirements advances have already begun to happen to discuss once such advances in cognitive identification further i'm delighted to welcome dr alex nativedad to risk roundup dr nativedad is the presidency ceo of nimbus id and is based in mumbai state welcome dr nativedad we are honored to have you on risk roundup thank you for inviting me to be here So as digital global age necessitates increasing levels of connectivity mobility privacy and security physical identity seems to be on its way to being replaced or supplemented by evolving digital identity and authentication application now there is a lot of hope in biometrics technology but despite the seeming enormous potential of biometrics technology its implementation is creating complex security challenges what role do you see neuroscience or cognitive science playing in meeting the needs of human identification and authentication so um it's our position that um where we are today in terms of digital identity and identification or the process of what we call authentication um what we really do if you think about authentication it is nothing but proof of possession so for instance if i have a house key and i use that key to open the door to the house i can get in the problem is anyone can carry that key so if you look at where we are in the past for the internet came in that we have what we call physical forms of identification so there are like your driver's id birth certificate your dna uh thumbprint and things like that the problem is when we try to replicate physical identity across the web it's a bit different because the web is opaque you have no idea but you just assume that the person across the web is that person but you cannot trust the web that way uh that it used to be because of the proliferation of hackers and other bad actors so i came to this this problem back in 2012 when uh when logging in i had been hacked so many different times and uh it really uh uh annoyed me to the point that perhaps 
we have to rethink how we authenticate. So when I had to investigate this process, the first question that came to my mind is, what is the actual problem? That's very important because there is this assumption that the, the password is the problem. Is that correct? I mean, hey, we've been hacked so many times because somebody can steal or copy my password. So we have to break this down fundamentally. Password, at least for me, is not the real problem. Password is the result of a core problem that was never identified. So what does that mean? So um, when we try to authenticate, what happens is we create your online account, you put your data, and then you create your identifying username, and then you create a password. That's the basic uh, creation of online account. And then the server merely store those data sets so that in the future, when you uh, try to access your account, all you have to do is input your username and password and the server will receive that, right? And if it's matching, access is provided. Think about that for a second. We store our important information and sometimes our bank accounts and other significant information to be protected by a username and password where the server has no power to discriminate the end user. Once you enter the correct matching credentials, access is provided. There's no way to discriminate the end user. That's a fundamental problem. Now they say, hey, my password is not secure, okay? If you think the password is insecure, what they have done is secure the password by creating a second factor or biometric. Well, if really you're concerned about security, I'm just gonna put maybe a thousand door locks, right? Well, no, nobody can get in, right? But the problem is not actually securing the, the, the door, is securing the identity of the person because you have to open the door. You have to provide access. So going back, we think that the real problem is the inability to prove the identity of the end user. So instead of proving what you know as in password or possessing a device or token as your second factor or your biometric, what we need to do is add an identity test. If you think about password, password is something that can be copied. If you can copy a password, you can share. So if you can copy and pay uh, a copy and share a password, you can fish that. That's a fundamental defect. Second, they created a uh, two-factor authentication. Uh, they will send an SMS code to your device, which is what you have. Well, guess what? That device, when they do SMS, SMS messaging from one telco to telco, uh, it's what we call via the SS7 layer. SS7 is a communication tool. It has nothing to do with security. So the problem with SS7 is it is vulnerable to intercept. So that the second factor 
that you send via your phone is already intercepted by the hacker who read your password. So the layer of hurdle is though a little bit harder for the hacker, it's not secure. It makes no sense to secure a proof of possession or knowledge, kind of like password, with another proof of possession. They have the same intrinsic vulnerabilities. It makes no sense. So now I come with my biometric. For biometric is a form of static identification. It being static, it can be copied. Once it's copied, therefore it is no longer exactly you. So the question is, what is the real problem that led to all these hackings and breach and, and, and never ending problems, right? If you look back uh, two days ago, for instance, uh, Facebook uh, apparently were storing password for how many millions of password, right? Uh, and it's not encrypted. But even if you encrypt that, you're still susceptible to the same vulnerability. So the question is, how do we change the way we authenticate in a way we prove the identity of the person? So if we ask that question, therefore, we need to ask, what is the actual problem? The actual problem is the form of authentication is based on proof of possession or knowledge, whereas you need to have a proof of identity. So that's kind of like the premise that we have. And second fundamental problem is the server which provides access should have the authority to discriminate the end user as opposed to just receiving credentials. If you solve those two problems, then access bridge is going to be fundamentally changed or diminished. If you look at 2017 in the Verizon report, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, it says that the global fraud loss was $500 billion. Yes. But 81% of that was due to compromised credentials. That's about $400 billion, right? Yes. So my question is, if you don't have any fish, the fishing attacks will stop. Like a fisherman, do you ever see a fisherman fish in a swimming pool? It's not gonna happen. There's no fish there. So in terms of the fishing attacks of logging credentials, instead of making it more difficult to be fish, why not remove the fishing object? That's, the, that's our premise, right? So, if you, if you, so instead of me using my device or my other biometric identification as a layer to protect my, my access login, I'm just gonna change that where it becomes dynamic and then it lets the server discriminate the end user. So that's, yeah. that's our technique. Yes, I hear you on that. And that was a good background, you know, about uh, the challenges and how you, uh, wh why we are going towards, you know, using human brain as a biosensor. Because since 1790, when uh, I think Galvani discovered electrical currents and laid the foundation of modern neurophysiology, we have learned to use electrical technology 
electrophysiology to study brain function. Right. So there are a lot of advances that have happened in electrophysiology where using digital electroencephalogram EEG system, we can use a human brain as a biosensor. So when we have reached to use the bioelectrical signals, the body's electrical activity, it seems to be based on the relative concentration of salt. So based on the advances in understanding, it is now possible to identify a person with the bioelectrical activity of the brain with 100% success. So what you're talking about, you know, the proof of knowledge and all that, it is possible to know based on the advances in the understanding we have reached. So we can identify a person based on the bioelectrical activity of the brain. So, it, But the question is, it seems that, you know, based on my research and understanding is that each individual, each human being has a different bioelectrical activity in his or her brain. So what it seems is that the brain fingerprinting is the foundation of the cognitive identification. Is that what you are pursuing to, you know, develop the cognitive ID, the brain uh, fingerprinting? Actually, it's a lot simpler than that, okay? Uh, so in, in so far as... Uh, uh, bioelectrical signals, your EKG of your heart, EKG for the brain, uh, that requires uh, extensive testing and device. But what we did was actually allow the human brain and its functionality and how it processes information as a way to reflect a human identity. So let me give an example. Uh, before I do this, uh, one of the irony of where we are with our uh, technology today is that because of the advancement of the computing uh, technology, we are, it seems to me, the, the tech giants use machines as a way to solve the hacking problems by proving who you are through technology. But if you look at the core basic, whether you like it or not, the human mind, we as a person, we interact with the external environment, all right? So we actually are supreme if you think about it. The machine is subordinate to the human person. So the first question that I ask myself is, why am I relying or why is technology relying on machine to prove who I am? Why can I not just be the one to prove who I am to the machine and once correctly done, I'm fully authenticated. Okay, so that's my first premise. So if you think about how the human brain evolved through the mind called cognition, uh, as we develop, as we grow over time, and as we mature in our experience across our external environment, we acquire knowledge. When we acquire knowledge, those knowledge are we call are a form of attributes. So a good example is like this. You went to school, you have friends, you have playmates, teachers, or things of that nature. And let's say, for instance, you saw a friend that you have never seen in 20 years, but you are a good friend to that, right? Let's say, uh, I'll give you an example, Julie Gomez. This is just an example. So Julie Gomez is my first girlfriend back in high school. 
in the year 1975 in Dallas. When she finished a high school, she went to college and became a golfer. Now, those are simple set of attributes that I know on that person because of our relationship. We all form relationships one or the other. So 20 years later, I have never seen that person. And if for some reason I see her in the airport, things flash in my head so fast. It's a, a recognition. I don't have to exert an effort to remember who she is. Say, wow, Julie, it's been a long time. And when I process and say the word Julie, all those attributes pop in my head just like that. Yes, I, I hear you. Or the point that you are making about recognizing someone, the information that is stored in our brain, because we know that person, we it would we would immediately remember, and our brain knows. So when the human brain recognizes any important information, yes. it triggers a specific electrical signal, and I think it's called murmur that can be measured and analyzed. So when a person sees something familiar, like you were just talking about your girlfriend, it seems that the surge of electrical activity in the EEGA wave, it usually arrives in within like 300 milliseconds. So I think that's what you know you immediately remember, but then also there is also a lot of challenges with human memory. Because there is a short-term memory, there is long-term memory. Now, there are some people who remember everything and the memories will come back quickly. You know, it doesn't come back quickly. Yes. Electrical activity wave that you are applying to your application for identification and authentication. Correct. So, let me just uh, expand on that, okay? Um, let's say I go back on the Julie Gomez. Instead of me measuring those electrical signals in my head, if those information, let's say the word Julie Gomez is projected on the screen and, and Julie Gomez is projected with four or five noise names. When I see the word Julie Gomez, I already know I'm thinking about things about Julie Gomez. And so if I use that system wherein on the next screen, I say girlfriend and then mix with other noise objects, and I keep on doing that several times in a row, I'm actually proving to the server that it's me because I'm able to contextually create the relationship without the server asking me. Because if it's me, I know what to do. If you're the hacker, you see objects, that means nothing to you. Now, you ask the question of memory. If you think about password or anything that is knowledge-based or static knowledge-based to authenticate, in, when, when you have a brain injury or dementia process, this information are easily lost. They, don't, they go away. But in so far as our uh, memory of the past, if they are significant, they are enduring, lasting, and true. So those are the things that are the last one to go in dementia process. It's always there, but by the time you're in severe stage, you're not gonna use computing anyhow. My point being is if you compare using static password that, that you have to memorize, whereas in your cognitive identification, 
you, you, can, you don't have to memorize something you know. So you know that already. It's the last to, to go away. So it's, it's more, it's a lot stronger and durable if you think about using content ID versus static password or anything that's knowledge-based. It's hard to forget something you know. It's easy to forget something you never know. Yes, but, the, but the challenge is, uh, doctor, that you know we have we do so many activities during the day, and we, uh, as as far as the cyberspace goes, we do a lot of activities in the cyberspace on internet that we don't remember every single thing. How many websites we have gone to, or you know what IDs we have created, and things like that. So when we measure information in the brain. We, we measure a brain response that tells us that that information that is flashing on the screen is something we recognize. We can we know if uh, that person is the right individual to get access to the website or that platform or that you know bank account or whatever you know that they are trying to get access to. But my my question is that. Uh, the challenge I see is that brain signals have chemical dependencies. So how do we take that into consideration? Because uh, it's not always hundred percent, you know, effective. So, so uh, okay. So the way we have designed the system of cognitive ID as a form of authentication, even if the brain, for instance, is uh, under the influence of intoxicating agents, right? Uh, your ability to recognize something that you know is still enduring. The ones that are not gonna be enduring are the ones that are recent memory. That's why when you create these data sets, you, you tend to go back to the enduring and durable experience that you have because they are immune from, from short-term intoxicating agents. So, but there's a topic that you touch here. Hey, I have about, over 100 online accounts. Actually, the average is about 130. So you have about 100, over 100 online accounts, which means you have over 100 passwords, and some of them can be reset or needs to be reset every 90 days. So there's a challenge to figure out what is the password. Second, you don't even know what is your username. Third, you can't even remember the website. So what we envision can happen in the future is Regardless of how many online accounts you have, your form of authentication or proving your identity is singular. Think about this. In the physical world, there's only one Dr. Pandya. But in your digital world, there are many of you. It makes no sense. So perhaps if we act, uh, harness the power of the working mind as your proof of identity, Regardless of how many accounts you, you have, you can easily access them by content ID with, without sure. any effort. Yeah. Sure, from what you were telling me, there is a huge potential, and I know that too, and you also know that. But still, I see that there are some barriers to taking this, you know, these systems that you have developed and commercialize it uh, so that we can use it effectively. If you go back to the biochemistry, you know, the salt concentration. The difference between the blood and inside the nerves and muscles, sorry about that, okay. is that it's disturbed by loss or increase of salt or by of the dividing membranes 
then the dysfunction of the nervous system results. So would that not be introduced accurate measurement of electrical activity? So from the standpoint of measuring those electrical activities and signals, they, they, they can be susceptible to changes in uh, electrolytes or even intensity of the signals. So, Sorry. Okay. <coughs> Sorry about that, I'm recovering from so, so one of the limiting factors of that is they are susceptible to acute external changes. In addition, to use that as a form of authentication, you need a device, your device dependent. Whereas in Cognitive ID, your device independent. You can use any computing device, even Wi-Fi devices, without fear of getting your credentials stolen because the next time you log in, it's different. So we feel that the, 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 the one thing that truly separates us is how we as a human being, how we process information. It will be unique. So I'll give you an example. If you and I go to a concert, and sit side by side and watch the concert intensely. And then we are asked to go to room A and room B and separate. And we describe what happened. You and I will describe that experience differently. There will be some similarities, will never be exact. So my point is how we, how we process information and how we integrate is unique to each individual. That being the case, why can't we use how we think Versus what we know as like your cognitive DNA equal your physical DNA. It reflects you in a very cheap way and it's fundamentally true. Sure, but I, I hear your point on that. How do we think, but how do we measure how each individual thinks? You know, is there a, uh, some test technique to measure how we think? Is there a test to measure what? Uh, a technique available to you know understand how each individual thinks. Do we have that? Uh, I'm not so sure that I know how to answer that question, but what I do know is when we made testing of this procedure, um, what was quite uh, significant was the users described zero difficulty in remembering the data sets because they know. So I guess my question is, in order to validate this process, instead of measuring, we tried it to each individual and it was a breeze for them. In fact, a lot of them said, it's like back to memory lane. I just, it's a happy thought. It's easy for me to authenticate, thinking about what I wanna think versus me forcing to think about something I cannot remember. So it was a, a, a so it was a, an elegant uh, response from the users, and so far as the uh, friction and the excitement of doing the process, don't you know it's boring to log in a password? I, I, of course, I dislike doing that. Yes, I hear you on that. You, uh, we both agree on all these parameters, but I see some technical challenges still needs to be overcome. For example, uh, if there is a dead person, also he's announced clinically dead. The electrical activity is still following that person, uh, even after you know he's announced clinical death. So if you put that person in front of that you know um, identification uh, cognitive ID machine, then you will still be able to you know get the identification. So, 
Okay, so one way for us, we solve that question. How do you still access the online account of that user who suffered tremendous brain injury or is dead, right? There is no content process. So when you want to open your account through this process, we will ask you, do you want to have a shared account or delegated account? So that let's say your husband, for instance, um, I want my husband in time of my death to be able to access my account. So your husband will register, but instead of your husband uh, accessing your account via your credentials, the husband has to create her, his own profile and he will access the account via his own content sets. So there is no danger of losing an account uh, which is present in a password if unless you share it to someone. But the basis of sharing is where you get hacked. So yes, no, I, I hear you. That there is a benefit. You know, there is a potential benefit there. A shared account, so it would be a really good idea to go follow it. But my other question is: memories can be planted in the near future. As you see, I'm sure you must be keeping an eye on the advances that are happening in the brain uploading, and that. Uh, yeah. In the near future, we have the capacity to retrieve all the information from the human brain and upload it to another human being or a, a robot or any other machine. And uh, we, we have already successfully done that in uh, uh, taking out all the brain you know, activity from the human And we implanted that in a robot that was made from Lombo. How would, I mean, these challenges still emerge as the artificial intelligence and you know machine learning and all that advances further so what, what you have developed is amazing and i have been waiting for this technology to come forward uh, so that you know we can have a very good identification and authentication system I do there are some technical challenges that we need to be overcome how will we know once the memory is implanted that, you know, that is the individual so uh, there are two things. One, you mentioned about a, a technology, even now or in the future, where the brain input or memory or data sets, if you will, can be uploaded and be uh, pre-configured via AI, and 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 then therefore negate the uh, the uniqueness of cognitive ID. Um, that might be true. I'm not so sure, but. Compared to where we are today, with all the current existing forms of authentication, uh, they are fundamentally defective in the fact they're static and there is no uh, power on the enterprise server base to discriminate the user. What we are changing and comparing to the current authentication is, one, it is dynamic and therefore it cannot be fish. And second, the server can discriminate end user. So comparing those two, I think there's a significant advantage. Whether this new technology evolving of brain mapping, uh, data set uploading will, will negate the advantage of cognitive ID, I'm not so sure. But if you, if you add cognitive ID as a proof of identity or identity test to current proof of access, then the current proof of access hack will be lot, lot less if if not disappear 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, I'm not so sure. Uh, but I have one question for you that, that, that related to this question that you have, um, the so-called AI and technology evolving. So we have this form or the word called artificial intelligence. If you think about that, which really I have a big issue, there is nothing artificial about intelligence. Sure. As far as I'm concerned, right? I, I really think intelligence is a human, it's a pure human function. People misuse words. I think I think what they're talking about is smart knowledge or smart computing, because intelligence is knowledge yes. plus dynamic thinking, creativity, and innovation. Yes. And knowledge, you may know everything but you may not be intelligent. Sure. No, so, so, so based on what you, you I just asked me, uh, I, I really still think even if there is an AI technology or machine where my brain has been uploaded, one of the critical difference is the contextual thinking of the human person is very hard to impersonate. Whether that evolving technology can actually impersonate all the things that I know and how I think about that, I'm not so sure about that. But even if they do, it is very expensive um, and still difficult as far as I'm concerned. But see, the point that I agree with you on the term artificial intelligence, it's just a commonly used uh, So, you know, a lot of people use that. But what you just talked about, you know, the way you know, humans think, the way the thought processes, so... Uh, from my understanding, the brain you know, fingerprinting, using in using that, we can easily see whether that knowledge of that you know event or that ID or anything you know is in the brain. So, based on that EEG wave pattern, we can easily you know uh, identify that whether that person is who that person is, or you know whether he he or she has the knowledge. But uh, the way any individual would think i haven't come across you know any research on that whether that we have made advances in uh, identifying you know a individual based on the way the person thinks so if we have come up with a technology or there are further advances in neuroscience which allows us to identify individuals based on the way they think then i think you know we are on a great uh, path because that gives us a strong foundation to identify and authenticate any individual because you memory. Uh, there are a lot of you know, even if you put that memory in a computer or robot, the biochemical environment would not be similar in that. Like so, I agree on that one. So um, that we agree. I think um, um, in addition to using the brain or the power of the mind as your cognitive DNA to authenticate, one potential benefit is your scattered identity, your fragmented identity can be unified into one, and you, as the user, as rightfully so, has the control. If you think about it, you can control who can access your account, how it's accessed, um, assuming we have the correct, correct uh, laws to regulate that, because one of the problems that we have now is our identity is all over the web and is 
owned and used and misused by enterprise. Think about that for a second. We don't have control. Whereas if you have a singular proof of identity to your account, and if there's the right set of government regulations, this privacy data leaks or insecurities can drastically be controlled uh, because nobody can use your data without your permission. Sure. So that, that could be a potential side benefit of creating a singular identity test to our uh, all accounts, as far as I'm concerned. Yo, no, I hear you on that. That would be amazing. So let's talk about uh, Nimbus ID, your company that you have launched. Uh, and uh, you, I, it seems you have come up with a technology, cognitive ID technology for identification and authentication. So at what st stage is the development? Are you ready to commercialize? So we're actually uh, going to market this year. Uh, we are integrating, uh, we're actually integrating with Slack, Box, Dropbox, and uh, we're attacking O365. We, we made a business plan that O365 is extremely, uh, or probably one of the most commonly used uh, apps there. And therefore, uh, in terms of usage, could be uh, a big, the best advantage for us to enter. So we're finalizing that in the next few weeks, and we are going to enter the market this year. And uh, that's where we are. So how, how does the technology look like? Is it some sort of a headset that everyone have to wear? Or how would the identification work? So actually what's going to happen is uh, if you want to access your account, uh, you put in your username, for instance, and instead of seeing a password box, we don't see that. We just see a screenshot that, want, that asks you, it doesn't really ask you, but you have to click five times about certain objects that you know that relates to all the objects together. So you have to have a contextual connection. So it, 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 if you're the actual owner of the account, you know what to do. But if you're the hacker, you're at a loss because you see something, but what is this? That's why it cannot be phished because next time we log in, it's different. So the, the concept of phishing in software as phishing your credentials is gone. Yeah, I hear you. So there is no headset involved. The users don't have to wear anything. They just have to click on, you know, different images that will. Yeah, you just click. That's it. But of course, when you first become a user, just like in any crowd uh, account creation, you create your own data sets. We 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 uh, prompt you how to do that. But so our experience is a user can create enough data sets that will be used for 100 authentication in like three minutes. So if you use that for the next 100 times you log in, um, we don't have to create any more data sets. So it's very useful in that regard. Uh, so even though you are using uh, the knowledge in the brain, you are actually not using the science of brain waves or... No, no. We, we don't measure those things. It's, 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 I'm just stopping your brain to think because I know if you think the way you think, it's you. My job is just to protect to you how to tap the brain to think. And therefore, you're not cognitively thinking. And by the way, 
if you think about this, this is kind of important to touch on. Um, when you do this process, you do it for a reason, for that particular moment. And therefore, like it or not, it's a, what we call qualified intent. There is a legal implication. Whereas in a password or biometric technology or two-factor, there is no direct expression of me intending to do that. So for example, let's say my iPhone got my fingerprint, my face ID. What if I'm drunk? I'm intoxicated, pass out. Anyone near me can take my hand and push this button and, and you know, get to my account. And therefore, I'm already hacked. So let's say they go to my bank apps, transfer XYZ money. The following day, I got a congratulations for my bank. I didn't do that. So I had to contest that. So in, in content ID, it's you for that session. So we call that a qualified intent. So if I can sign a document based on content ID, I am legally signing that because I'm thinking in the same way I write, I sign a document in the, in the fiscal world, right? Whereas in a current form of electronic signature, most of them are based on username and password. So how can you prove it was me? In fact, frequently in the past, I would ask my wife who knows my username and password, why did you sign that for me? So therefore there's a disparity in terms of legalities. So when you, when you authenticate to an account, you have to really reflect it's you because the implication is massive from transaction, control settings, all those things, things require the correct end user. So if with this technology, not only it's proving it's you, it proves that you're doing the transaction and the changes that is required, which is a good thing to do for IoT device. If you think about it, all this fear about IoT because, hey, the settings can be changed because it's not well protected. If you have a, an IoT module access control that requires you to authenticate, all these IoT hacks can be decreased if not eliminated. But how would the uh, Internet of Things uh, authentication work with this system? So if you think about this IoT device, there is an access point to this. Some of them are default passwords or very weak access points. If you, con if you connect this IoT device to your network and you have an IoT control module center so that before somebody can come in, you have to authenticate, then it decreases this, this access bridge that is all over these devices. I'm just saying that in the future, the point being is, like it or not, in any online accounts or any device or anything that is connected to the network that has our presence, it requires two things. Access, access of the correct person, and then transaction, transaction of the correct registered person. Sure, but if you look at uh, IoT devices, I mean, there would be millions of devices that would look similar. Uh, so how would uh, you identify and authenticate any IoT device on any particular network? What would be the basis? Because they don't have the memory or they, don't, uh, they cannot identify, you know, the images and uh, on which you know, your technology is. All I'm saying is if all these devices are connected to my network, let's say my home network, right? 
I have a lot of these uh, devices that are connected. I should be the only one who has the control to change the settings to allow which device to come into my network. That's, that's one layer of security. As it is now, all these devices that we have that we connect uh, are vulnerable to external actors. So what if I limit through this module that cannot be fished in the way it is now with password, then I limit my vulnerability. That's all I'm saying. Sure, I understand. So based on what you are telling me about cognitive ID, while we do use any virtuals, uh, the ability to recognize any images that is in front of uh, on the on the screen on the computer screen, it it actually doesn't use much of the cognitive science other than you know ability to recognize that yes that image or this image you know I am familiar with. So because if you look at brain fingerprint, uh, you wear a headset and then there is actually you know. A, identification happening based on the brain waves so that's 100% accurate science uh, but these you know I, I still have to you know think about these a little more because uh, i'm not sure how depending on the circumstances you know what images people can see and uh, what would be the complex challenges emerging as we advance further in the brain uploading and uh, other you know, areas that are emerging for cognitive science so that will uh, that we still need to see but i really think um one of in my mind one of the uh, true limitations of brain electrical signals uh to reflect a human being uh it can be uh, uh not only uh uh, um, limiting so far as the device that will do that, um, how to elegantly store the signals per thinking session, if you will, to reflect the, the correct electrical uh, static data, it's going to be very hard. It's, it's the same process as like, you know what, I'm going to register a hundred thoughts. And from those hundred thoughts, I have pure electrical signals from each thought. Imagine the effort in doing that, and and the the the, uh, uh, the, the difficulty in doing that for the user. So I, I think uh, that's possible. But in so far as market application, keep in mind everybody wants convenience and ease of use. I think it's a friction. I'm not saying it's not, but it's unless there's a, a better way of doing that. I'm not optimistic. Sure, I understand. Now, let's say the examples that you give that you are trying to um, develop partnership with Dropbox. Let So for the Dropbox account users, once they go through all that testing, you know, the, they identify the images and all that, what is stored as far as the Dropbox server goes? What kind of information do they would they store? So actually there are two ways to do this. One is we have an on-prem solution so that the technology resides within Dropbox. They just manage the user data sets. Or via Simon integration, we are a cloud service. So when the user inputs the username and goes to Dropbox, Dropbox will send us a signal. Can you please authenticate this person? 
and then the you, you as a user will authenticate via Concave ID. Once done correctly, we send a one-way token back to uh, Dropbox. Hey, that person's good to go. And then access is provided by you. I see, I see. So it's actually, uh, it really depends on the integration and the desire of the enterprise. But the point being is, in those two settings, the best part is we feel the control is within the user and the enterprise. But in this instance, the enterprise is challenging who you are, which does not exist today. I think that's powerful. I mean, you don't let somebody in your home, not knowing who that person is, you have to first challenge and ask. Same token, why do we let the server be happy with just having the same username and password when we know it's not the right person? So discrimination of the end user, I think, is critical. Yes, yes. I, I, I hear you. I mean, uh, as far as the human ID identification and authentication goes, this could be very, very useful. I'm just not sure how it will work very effectively with the Internet of Things. But again, I still have to understand this and analyze it more. So if you have been able to develop a proper process for Internet of Things, that would make it, make it really transformative because that is something that is so very needed as we move forward with, uh, you know, Internet of Things, Internet of Everything in the coming years. So that is going I to be... I think in IoT, uh, standards need to be placed and some required uh, minimum functionalities uh, for devices or manufacturers so that uh, enabling and securing technologies can be in place. So I think those are critical ingredients. But like it or not, one of the basic fundamental requirements for IoT security is access control. Whatever word you want to define that, and that access control is true and true for the registered user. That's it. And because IoT is just no different than all my other tablets, cell phone, and desktop connected. Um, so. So let's say you have a smart meter on a, you know, then how would uh, that smart meter, so the access to the smart meter would be authenticated based on what? Uh, so if, if let us say, uh, let's make it easy. Let's say my, uh, uh, my human device, let's say I have an implant, right? So this implanting device, let's say morphine pump, there are control settings to this. There's always a way to control the device. That access control to the device requires human intervention, always. So what I'm saying is, why do we- for, I, for Internet of Things, not always. We oh, I guess not, that, that's not a good word to say, not always, but there's a lot of devices that if you create an access control that is human powered or human enabled, uh, then these automated robotic attacks will diminish. Sure. So, so this 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 dilemma about implanted device like morphine pump or uh, things like that. If those devices can be enabled with a setting control, all I'm saying is, why don't we have that setting control be cognitive enabled before you can change anything? Because that's where the bad actors come in. They change the settings, and everybody's in trouble. 
Yes, no, I hear you on that. But there are in the coming years we'll see that uh, there will be a lot of you know systems where humans will have no involvement when autonomous you know uh, systems will emerge. Uh, we humans are not going to have any involvement. So if you can figure out how to authenticate those systems, you know those IIT IoT devices uh, where there are no humans involved, then this could have a really huge potential. So I really believe uh, that the future of internet and so far security is concerned is not so much about machine enabled or AI. Uh, there has to be a human intervention so that this propagated robot attacks can stop. Because this excessive automation is so hard to recognize that leads to damage by the time it's recognized. So why don't we stop for a second, continue AI and machine development, but let's not forget we should be involved in the process. So. Yes. Now, thank you so much, Dr. Natividad, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on Cognitive ID, and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the application of cognitive science for uh, identification and authentication. So even if a single individual or an entity is able to benefit from the discussion we had today, this Risk Roundup dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Wonderful. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it's not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security. Security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk standards, to watch the risk standard webcast or hear the risk standard podcast, please go to riskgroupalacy.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of the standard signing off. See you next time. Thank you.